we're looking at uh, the book of Revelation, and this is Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at it in its entirety. So I'll read it for us. This is a word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. God, we thank you just for the Sunday. And, you know, what a glorious passage, and what a passage to remind us of, uh, of worship in heaven. And uh, I think all of us, uh, whether we know it or not, uh, we long to uh, get a taste of that. We long to experience a little bit of that. And, um, uh, you know, through faith and at least spiritually, uh, we, we join with all of heaven, even as we worship and praise you today. So uh, I guess if anything, through your word, uh, I pray, God, that you would impress upon us the gloriousness of who you are, of your presence, uh, but also the great uh, privilege and honor um, and need that we have in our hearts and our souls to give you glory and honor and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we are going through the book of Revelation, and I think in many ways, these next two chapters, chapters four and five, uh, they set up the visions for the rest of the book. Uh, you know, if you hear people preach through Revelation, usually they'll preach through like chapters one, two, three, four, five, and then, you know, 19, 20, 21, uh, 22. But then I guess the in-between stuff you rarely hear. But uh, I think chapter four and five are actually important chapters to understanding the, the chunk or the section that you don't hear from so much uh, because they kind of set the tone or set the narrative or set the story about what those chapters are going to be about. And so chapters four and five, they form basically one vision and ideally they should be read together and they should be preached together. But this vision is so glorious that I thought it would be good to spend two weeks on it. And so if you want to organize it in your mind, uh, you can think about it like this. Chapter four basically sets the stage for the drama that is going to unfold in the next chapter in chapter five. Now, speaking of uh, setting the stage, you know, this week I was reading this interview from a Broadway set designer. Uh, her name is Rachel Hawk. And, um, you know, one of the unfortunate things about this pandemic is uh, there are no more shows that you can see on Broadway. 
But a few years ago, she was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Set Design for the musical Hades Town. Uh, I don't know if any of you heard of that musical, Hades, like Greek mythology, H-A-D-E-S, Hades Town. And in the interview, she talked about how she, you know, her pathway to becoming the set designer. And when she was in high school, her friend wanted to be in a play. And in order to act in a play in that high school, what you had to do is you had to spend an entire weekend helping to build the set. And so she tagged along with her friend with no intention of being in the play. But uh, she discovered as she helped build the set after that experience, she said, this is exactly what I want to do. But I thought the way she phrased it was so interesting because, um, you know, they would look at this little model of the set and then they would try to replicate that by building the set. And she looked at this little model of the set and she said, I want to do that. I understand how to tell a story like that. And I'm sure this is obvious to most people, but it hit me when I read this interview. You know, the set design is actually really, really important for telling a story. It's actually part of the story. It's not just an afterthought or an empty space, but the set itself sets up the framework for the drama that's going to unfold through the actors that are participating in this drama. And that's obvious for film where you have multiple sets, but you know, for like a live show, like a play or a musical, uh, you have to basically work within that same framework because there are so many limitations in terms of doing live theater. So there's a lot of thought that goes into set design for this live production because you really have to de determine what elements are really essential for telling uh, the story and not just the story of a particular scene, but the entirety of the story. If Revelation 4 is like the set design, then what we see in this vision is also an invitation into a story, into the story that is going to be given even before the drama unfolds in this next chapter. And the set design is glorious because John sees a vision of God on his throne. And I don't know if you ever uh, actually imagined it. Could you imagine what it would be like to see God? Uh, you probably wouldn't be able to convey what you're seeing in human language, uh, which is why this vision doesn't really get into much details in terms of describing God, if you notice, right? Rather, we get a sense of who God is, of the glory of God on account of everything that's happening around the throne, on account of the creatures around the throne. They are worshiping God, they are singing songs, and they are giving God all glory and honor. Now, when this set designer, Rachel Hawk, when she's talking about creating a, a set for Hayestown, um, she said it was her most challenging project because, you know, the screenplay itself was a metaphor. And so the question is, how do you turn a metaphor into this concrete set design? And that was her challenge. And I imagine there's a similar challenge in trying to capture the glory of God. You know, my kids know, uh, you know we always say God is everywhere, but we can't see him. And so my youngest would... You know, she would point to a random spot in the air and she'd say, is God here? And I'd say, yep. <laughs> she would grab it, right? Is God here? Yep. And she would grab it. Uh, and then, you know, my oldest would say, you know, God is in our hearts. But our hearts have like these little tubes going in and out of it. And it doesn't look like the kind of hearts that we draw, right? I don't know how she knew that or where she got that uh, idea. I mean, that's accurate. That's not what our hearts look like. Uh, but you know, she's right in a literal sense. And when people say God is in our hearts, they don't usually mean that literally. It's figurative language, right? It means that God is always with us. God is near to us. And the best we can do is to describe God is basically to use, you know, figurative language because there are no sufficient analogies to God. God is that unique. And that's part of what makes God, God. And so what when my kids say, you know, they don't see God, what I do is uh, I draw from uh, one of the questions from 
the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, that I had to memorize a long time ago when I was uh, studying for ordination exams. And I tell them God is spirit, right? Which is what John chapter four says, God is spirit. Now, if you're not familiar uh, with the catechisms, they, they do have a practical utility in terms of you can, it helps you answer kids' questions. But you know, if God is spirit, how do you describe God in concrete terms, right? It's a bit like the struggle that Rachel Hawk had as a set designer for Hadestown. It's impossible to describe God and his glory in these concrete terms. And so the next best thing you can do to get across how glorious God is, is by observing everybody else's response in his presence. And that's what we see in this vision. Now, this vision is similar to uh, some of the encounters you see that, that the prophets had with God. And of course, there are parallels in this vision with passages in Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And what happened, you know, what happens when Isaiah has his vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter six? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. What happens when Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord? He falls down on his face. Uh, even in the book of Revelation, what happened when John saw a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1? He fell down on his face. And so you see the pattern here. It's a kind of glory that is so great that you can't help but to feel unworthy and fall down upon your face. And yet John is presented with a door uh, standing open in heaven. And he is given this invitation to come and to see and to enter into the throne room of God. Now, last week we looked at, um, you know, two of the letters of the seven letters, and we looked at the letter to Laodicea. And uh, if you recall, I said the reason why I want to look at that letter is because it transitions nicely into this vision. And if you remember, um, you know, at the uh, in all of those seven letters. Uh, it's addressed to seven churches who are experiencing some kind of struggle. So you have the churches that weren't being faithful and they're struggling with things like compromise or apathy. And then you have the churches that were being faithful and they're struggling with things like persecution and poverty. And then there's a mixture of a combination of both. And the end of those letters conclude with a statement. And they always say to the one who conquers, right? Or uh, another translation, the one who overcomes. And it's followed by a promise. Well, that letter to Laodicea, it ends like this, right? The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And this throne imagery, that's what transitions nicely into uh, this vision, into chapter four and five. And that promise ties in directly with what John is seeing here. But after, you know, after reading those seven letters, you're, you're kind of left wondering, what is the solution to the church's problems? And perhaps you see all the problems with you know, our particular church, or you see problems with churches around the country, and you think, how in the world are we going to become the church that Jesus wants us to be? And I think this vision in Revelation 4 and 5 presents us with the solution. The solution is to have a vision of God that is so great that it really captivates our hearts to worship. You see, because if idolatry is the struggle, the solution really is to reclaim a sense of wonder and awe in who God is so that our hearts would be drawn to him in worship and we would choose God over worthless idols. And when John sees in this vision, or what he sees in this vision is, I think, the very thing we need to see in order for uh, us to come to our senses, in order for the... Uh, churches to come to their senses. And so what does John see? Well, there's a lot in here. So I think just by way of orientation, uh, I want to highlight three parts of this vision. 
I want to look at the throne. I want to look at the elders. And I want to look at the four living creatures. And, you know, I don't actually mean this to be a sequential outline because I might jump from one to another. But they're more like hooks so that we can kind of get a hold onto uh, this vision. Okay, so we're going to look at the throne and we're going to look at the elders and we'll look at these four living creatures. Now, first, he sees this throne in heaven and one is seated on the throne. And it describes the one who sat on the throne as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And these are uh, precious stones. And without getting into too much detail about these stones, I'll just say what these precious stones communicate is the splendor and the majesty of God. And we also see these precious stones in the vision of the New Jerusalem later on, which also tells us that the New Jerusalem will have similar splendor and majesty. Now, around the throne, there is this uh, rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. And the rainbow can also conveys a sense of God's glory. And again, you have the same imagery from Ezekiel 1, where the rainbow is likened to the appearance of brightness or radiance all around. And, you know, you can get into the details, but the picture presented to us is pretty clear. And it's this. God is glorious and God is majestic. And he is the one who sits upon the throne. Now, why does heaven portray God as seated on a throne? What does a throne communicate? Well, the throne is actually not unique to God. So, for example, in chapter 2, uh, Jesus tells the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So, apparently, Satan has a throne as well. I think a throne signifies a, a kingdom, and there are two kingdoms that are warring against each other, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And Satan's throne will come up later again in uh, Revelation chapter 13. And when we get there, uh, what we're going to see is that Satan attempts to counterfeit God himself, the triune God, because Satan is not the original and he can't be the original. The best thing he can do is be a counterfeit. And so even the throne of Satan, the throne that Satan sits upon, is actually not a real throne with any kind of real power or any kind of real authority, but it's a counterfeit. And this vision shows us that God is the one who ultimately sits upon the rightful throne. He is the original. He is the one who has true sovereignty over all of human history. And even though Satan wants to disrupt that, he will ultimately lose in the end because the best he can do is be a counterfeit. God's throne is the real throne. And as the one who sits upon the throne, he exercises true power and true authority. And part of that power and authority brings down Satan's throne. Again, the message of Revelation, if you want to simplify it, is Jesus wins. Now, the throne is also a display of the transcendence of God. And I was reading a systematic theology book this week. And the author was talking about God's transcendence. And you know, he made an interesting point. He was pointing out how a lot of people seem to understand transcendence to mean, you know, God is so far above us that it's actually impossible to know him or to know anything true or real about him. And, of course, you have like the, you know, the spiritual but not religious types. And uh, they would probably say something like that. They would say, I believe in some kind of higher power, but it's not possible for anyone to know this higher power. And so what this theologian was saying, that's, that's not Christianity. So if you understand transcendence uh, in that way, then that's not really reflective of uh, the Christian God. You see, in the Christian faith, it's actually possible to know our transcendent God, not because we ourselves are transcendent, but, but because he chose to reveal himself to us uh, through this voluntary act of condescension. And so uh, he became imminent, and through his imminence, 
we're able to know him. We're able to know a transcendent God. And so when we think about the term transcendence, uh, what this theologian says is, um, at least even, and it matches his vision, he says, uh, when you think of God's transcendence, uh, you have to think of it as enthronement, that he is the exalted, majestic Lord and King who is seated upon his throne. Uh, when we think about God's transcendence, uh, it's not that he is so far high above us that we can't know him, but he is far above us and higher than us in that he is exalted. He is far more glorious than us. And um, he is transcendent in that way. Now, as I said before, you, you do get a sense of how glorious God is based on all of the activity that's happening around the throne. And this leads to the second part of the vision. You have these 24 elders. And starting in verse 4, John sees 24 thrones, right? Seated on, uh, right? And seated on those 24 thrones are 24 elders. And they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And by the way, if uh, we had looked at all seven letters in the previous two chapters, uh, those elements were there, right? You have the thrones, you have the white garments, and you have the crowns in the seven letters. Now, who are these 24 elders? And I guess here's where you get into some of the uh, nitty-gritty debate um, about some of the details of the passage. Uh, these 24 elders, they either um, represent the totality of the redeemed, or they represent some uh, kind of heavenly being. Now, for those who think they represent like believers of all time, they'll say this. They'll say, uh, well, you have the 12 patriarchs and you have the 12 apostles and they make up a total of 24 representing the totality of the people of God from the old covenant and the new covenant. And there's support for that because in Revelation 20, 21, it does talk about the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles at the 12 gates and the 12 foundations. But uh, I think it actually makes more sense that these 24 elders are probably heavenly beings because when elders are mentioned in the book of Revelation, they're actually distinguished from the community of the redeemed. So for example, in Revelation 14, you have the 144,000, which represents a community of the redeemed, right? Believers. And this 144,000, they're singing new songs before the throne, but then you have the four living creatures and the elders, and they could not learn that new song. And so, um, I think it makes more sense to say that these 24 elders are probably uh, like heavenly representatives of God's people. And I didn't talk about it last week, but the seven letters are, you know, they're actually addressed to angels if you, if you read it carefully, right? Every letter starts to the angel of the church in Ephesus or Pergamum or Laodicea. Uh, they are written to the representatives of the church. So I think we can say these 24 elders are heavenly representations of the entire church. Now, there are some little, uh, th those are some of the little details I was telling you that make Revelation uh, kind of a challenge to interpret. But again, the bigger picture is pretty clear. God is worthy of worship and all heavenly creatures surround him in worship. And no matter what these elders represent, that part and is clear. And that's the main point of this vision. Now, along with these 24 elders, you have four living creatures on each side of the throne. And the description of these four creatures is pretty strange if you try to kind of imagine it or envision it in your mind, right? They are full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle. And they have six wings and are full of eyes all around. And you find similar creatures in Ezekiel and Isaiah's visions. And scholars think that they represent all of creation, 
Uh, I'm going to spare you the details for this one as to why uh, I don't think we can really be sure what they are, but all we can say is that they are heavenly beings, and these are the ones who are leading in worship. So notice this. Notice uh, that day and night, they need, never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever they give glory to God who is seated on the throne, the 24 elders, they follow and they fall down before God who is seated on the throne and they start singing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, um, I'm going to come back to those songs in a minute, but I just want to point out that these four creatures seem to be the ones who initiate worship. Uh, I remember, you know, when we were on our summer trip and we were in Istanbul and we visited the uh, Hagia Sophia, uh, I remember you look at the at the ceiling and you have you see this artist depiction on the ceiling of these actual heavenly creatures, the cherubim and the seraphim. And it's on the ceiling in the place of worship. And I remember thinking about this passage and thinking, you know, how cool would it be to worship in this room? Uh, as you worship and as you sing songs of praise, you look up at the ceiling and you see the uh, these heavenly creatures and you are reminded that all of heaven is doing the very same thing. And you're reminded that in worship, there is a sense in which you do transcend space and time because you join with all of heaven in worship before the throne of God, getting a taste of what it will be like to be in his glorious presence in heaven. And I know we don't always experience that, and we tend to focus on the imminent aspects of worship, right? Like the venue, uh, the temperature, the music, the sermon, uh, the speaker, the, the number of people who are there. But you see, worship is meant to be transcendent, and the imminent things are meant to serve that. God lifts us up and invites us into his very throne room to be in his presence and to worship with all of heaven. And the more we experience that, I think the more meaningful Sundays become, and the better our heart's orientation will be. So let's look at uh, some of the songs that are being sung here. You know, I, I'd love to actually look at each song, but I don't think we'll have uh, time for that. The only thing I want to point out about these two songs is that the heavenly creatures, they're worshiping God in song for, uh, they're pointing out his holiness and they're pointing out his work of creation. And God is worshiped for his holiness because that is what sets him apart from the rest of creation. Uh, that is, uh, I guess, you know, Jonathan Edwards would say that is part of what makes him God. That is his Godness. And the second song highlights this as well because it worships God for creating the world. And God as our creator is, again, part of what sets him apart from everyone else. There is uh, nobody who is original apart from God. Uh, we might think we're original, we might think we're creative, but our creativity and our originality are ultimately derivatives of God's creativity and his originality. So therefore we have no new thoughts, but all of our thoughts were first God's thoughts and we simply can think uh, God's thoughts after him. And God's ability to create uh, certainly sets him apart from Satan, as I mentioned before, because Satan can't create. He can only counterfeit. So God, as our creator, is worthy of all of our worship. He is worthy of glory and honor and power because he created all things. And so I guess to conclude, what I want us to do is I want us to consider singing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about the importance of singing before. 
you know, one of the things that we have lost by going virtual through this pandemic, um, we've lost our ability to sing together. And my guess is some of you probably feel awkward uh, singing at home in the same way that you might sing at church. And so maybe you refrain from singing. Uh, even here, me, myself, uh, as I'm in my office, I don't sing as if I would sing at church. I sing kind of quietly because it's just a little bit weird, right, to, to sing in front of your computer. Um, it's just not the same. And, you know, maybe you think, well, not much is lost without the singing part. And maybe the main thing is a sermon and that gets communicated through Zoom fine. Uh, maybe you're the type you never like singing at church uh, uh, in the first place. Or, uh, But, you know, singing is actually incredibly important. Uh, theologically important. And I would say pretty confidently that singing is something that is important to our faith. Uh, and when we can't sing in worship, I do think we lose something that is incredibly important. You know, there's a place in Ephesians 5 where Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, right? And uh, the natural question is, well, how do we be filled with the Spirit? How do we become filled with the Spirit? And I think part of the answer is found in the next clause. He says, by addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, I don't think he's saying that's the only way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but certainly it's one aspect of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, there's actually a lot of singing. There's a lot of songs. There's 15 songs in total in the book of Revelation, and five of those songs are found in chapters 4 and 5. And in John's vision of heaven, he shows us that there will be a lot of singing. I read a journal article this week that uh, focused specifically on that topic, the role of songs in the book of Revelation. And what that article was saying is that singing does more than what people think. People usually think of singing, again, in imminent ways. Uh, it's important because it helps you remember uh, certain truths or it helps connect you to certain emotions. And certainly that's true, but according to this article, uh, it was also saying singing in Revelation, what it does is it gives us a pattern of responding to trial and tribulation by confirming what ultimate reality is, that is spiritual reality, and by confirming the certainty of divine victory. And so what the author is pointing out is that the songs that are being sung, they are actually being sung with the accusing voice of Satan in the background thereby playing a key role in refuting Satan's accusations, right? That's, that's amazing. So in other words, singing praises to God in worship is an act of spiritual warfare. And that will become clearer in the songs that follow because some of those songs are songs against the enemies of God, but singing is something that is spiritually significant. You know, what came to my mind, you know, like those rap battles uh, that people have where you call the opponent a loser, right? And, uh, only in worship, uh, you're not declaring yourself to be the winner. You're declaring God to be the victor. And it's a little bit like that. Again, with Satan in the background offering accusations, in your singing, you're declaring, Satan, you're going to be the loser and God will be the victor. Now, if you have a hard time uh, believing that, it's kind of understandable because uh, the way our world is structured doesn't make it uh, easy to accept that. Uh, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor He's a little bit hard to understand, but I've been, I guess, uh, uh, looking at his stuff and people who've been looking at his stuff for a couple of years now. So I think I'm starting to understand what he's saying, but uh, he wrote a book called The Secular Age. And he says, you know, when we, uh, he basically says we live in a secular age. And by that, he doesn't mean that people don't believe in God or that there is no religion. But 
What he means by that is something has changed. And in the world that we live in today, it's possible for people to imagine a world where there is no God, to imagine a world where there is no transcendence. And that's a significant change from the world that people lived in a few centuries ago. Uh, let me give you an example. And let me give you an example of this with a dad joke. Uh, Dan, are you listening? Dad joke. <laughs> Here, here's a joke. Why are demons fat? Because they hate exercising, right? You get it? Ha, ha, ha. Now, when I tell you that joke, you probably don't find it funny, but not for the same reason someone who lived uh, uh, in the world a few centuries ago would not find it funny. You don't find that joke funny because it's not a funny joke. <laughs> but someone a few centuries ago would not find it funny because they would say this. They would say, oh, don't joke around about demons, right? The, the, the reality of the spiritual realm was, was so present in people's imaginations that they might say, you know, don't joke about these demons because it triggered some kind of fear that insulting these evil spirits would lead to some very bad things. Now, of course, they shouldn't be afraid of demons if God is the victor. But you see my point about uh, people's imaginations. I think modern people in a secular world would see those people and uh, wouldn't be able to comprehend how they could be so afraid of making a joke about a demon. And the inability even to imagine how someone might be afraid of a demon joke really exemplifies what it means to live in a secular age. So the structures that we live in, it doesn't uh, support cultivating an imagination of recognizing this spiritual, this ultimate spiritual reality. And that is why I think we need the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the corrective that we need for living in a secular age. It reminds us that there is this higher spiritual reality that is not seen simply with our physical eyes. I think what people are longing for in a secular age, whether they know it or not, is actually transcendence. And that's why I think one of the most impactful things you can do for a person is to pray with them and to remind them that there is actually something, or to put it a better way, there is actually someone who transcends this world that we see. God sits on his throne as the victor over Satan, over sin, over death. He is sovereign. He is mighty. He is holy. He is glorious. He is worthy of praise and honor. And he is the one who sent the Lamb of God to enact his will, to redeem this world, to raise us up with him. And that's what we're going to look at in chapter 5. But as far as chapter 4 goes, it sets the scene, right? It sets the scene. It tells the part of the story, the beginning part of the story that we need to hear, that the world that we see as it is, that the pandemic and uh, the viruses and the struggles and the, the death and the pain, uh, all of those things are certainly our reality, and we don't want to deny these things but they are not ultimate reality. And there is a spiritual reality that is at work uh, that we do not necessarily see with our physical eyes. And there is a spiritual battle also that rages on. Uh, Satan is seeking to divide. Satan is seeking to discourage, seeking to accuse, seeking to deceive, seeking to counterfeit. Right? He's trying to do all of these things. And what must the people of God do? Uh, not deal with it on simply a, an imminent level but we need to exercise the tools of prayer and worship and declare that God is victorious over Satan and over all these things. So friends, um, 
I hope you feel more motivated to sing. We're going to respond in worship. But singing is incredibly important, and it's how we declare that God is victorious. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this vision um, of your throne room. And, you know, I do hope that, um, I guess as we read it, as we meditate upon it and reflect upon it, I do hope that uh, this vision does excite our hearts because truly there is no greater place to be than in your presence, to be around your throne. Um, you know, it's, it's so hard to uh, imagine how glorious you are you know, to the point where we instantly feel the sense of unworthiness, to the point where we instantly feel as though uh, we need to fall down to the ground. And I don't know if any of us has experienced that beauty or glory to that degree. But God, uh, we do see that that is who you are, and we see it by uh, what takes place around your throne. And uh, I guess to the degree that we can uh, here on earth, here in the flesh, we do ask and pray you would give us a taste of that, a glimpse of that a glimpse of your glory, um, that we might uh, respond in worship. Worship not from a place of uh, willpower, um, not even worship from a place of duty, but worship from a place of delight, knowing truly you are worthy. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>